0: This psalm that we read this morning begins, not necessarily in verse 1, but right before it, with the little little introduction there, as all of the psalms between 120 and 134 do, with the words, a song of a sense. These, these 15 psalms make up kind of a, a collection of psalms within the larger collection of psalms, which is our book of psalms. And and most people agree that the phrase a song of ascents was referring to this collection of psalms that were sang by Jewish people as they traveled, as they pilgrimed, as they took their pilgrimage to Jerusalem. There were Jewish people living all over that area of the world and even a little bit beyond it. And so, two or three times a year, they would make a pilgrimage for for the Passover, for the Feast of Weeks, for the Feast of Tabernacles. And they would make their pilgrimage to Jerusalem. And on their way there, so it is said, these were some of the songs that they sang. And it's interesting because it kind of makes sense. These songs are are short, all of them except for, I think, one thirty-one or 2, or maybe 130. I can't remember which now are fairly short psalms. And so they would be fairly easy to memorize. And I would encourage you to take time to memorize some of these psalms over the course of the next two or three months. But in each of these songs, they they would have been singing. And the reason it says a song of a sense is because as you approach Jerusalem, now if you've had the privilege and, and the the ability to go to Jerusalem, you may know this. Jerusalem sits kind of up on a hill, such that to travel to Jerusalem would be to ascend, to go up. And not only that, but when you get to the temple, supposedly moving from one of the inner rooms of the temple to another, there were 15 steps. So some some of the traditions say, well, each of these songs represents one of the steps up the way to the temple. Whether that's true or not, we don't know. But each of these psalms, uh, again, is indicated as, as a song that could be sung on the way to Jerusalem. And I hope as we study these psalms, we will see that these are songs that we can sing or we can read or we can recite or we can we can pray through on our way home, on our way back to the great Jerusalem that we await, the new Jerusalem, which sits in the new heavens and the new earth and which... There is no temple because the presence of the Lord is there for us all. Now, these Psalms are interesting. I I thought of a few reasons I wanted to preach this series on just these 15 Psalms. One is actually this book, Uh, A Long Obedience in the Same Direction, for which I just gave Connor a copy, if you have a good memory. Um, In fact, I've given it to all of our graduating seniors here. Uh, It's a book by Eugene Peterson, who is an author I really enjoy. He writes a lot on pastoral ministry, and and I really enjoy what he writes. But in this book, all but one of the chapters is focused on each of the psalms that are in this collection, A Song of Ascents. And he walks through them, bringing out principles for the Christian life as we live, waiting and, and journeying and being pilgrims in this world on our way to God, on our way to Jesus Christ. Um, I'd commend the book to you, um, and you'll notice if you get it, that for the most part, I plan to take all of the sermon titles from the chapter titles of this book, which are simple words like repentance, happiness, providence, worship, things like that. Now, this collection of psalms is also useful for us, because if we're going to take uh, the psalms and try to study them and learn what different kinds of psalms are like, Uh, This is a really helpful collection, because in these 15 psalms, you will find basically every kind of psalm you could hope to find. Psalms of lament. We have uh, 120, 123, 126, and 130 are all lament psalms. You have wisdom psalms in 127, 128, and 133. And you have even a royal psalm in 132. And again, all the other psalms in this collection are kind of hymn psalms, praise psalms. And so I think it'll be very helpful for us to study all these different kinds of psalms. And finally, just simply, as we are people who live in a world that, although it was created by God, has fallen through sin and allowed death to enter it, we too are people living in a land that is devoid of God, a land that is difficult for us to live in, a land in which we really are pilgrims, And so, for all those reasons, I think this series will be helpful for us to look at. Now, the psalm we read this morning is interesting because it's not the most positive psalm that I've ever read. I don't know about you. It begins with the words, in my distress, and ends with the word war. So, it's not the most positive thing to be getting into. It's also interesting because just structurally, if you think about the psalms, I don't know if you've read many of the psalms... It's good to read them. It's good to pray through them. For the majority of the church's history, Christians prayed the Psalms. And it's only in recent history that we've gotten out of that practice. And maybe, perhaps, you can see some of those effects in where our churches are today. But if you've read many of the Psalms, you might know some of the Psalms of lament, that is, of anguish, of mourning, of of knowing that something isn't quite right and that we need God to fix it. They begin by... Describing a helpless situation, and at the end, they cry out to the Lord or call out to the Lord for deliverance. Now, if you notice, the psalm we read this morning begins and ends very differently, actually, inverted of most of the Psalms of Lament. It begins with a cry for deliverance and then describes a helpless situation, which isn't the most positive feeling, at least in the, the traditional Psalms of Lament. You go through all the anguish and the pain and the turmoil, and you end up at a place where you cry out to God, and you say, Lord, you can take care of this. I'm giving it to you. But here we begin by saying, Lord, you can take care of this. I'm giving this to you. But it's pretty hopeless anyway. That's how it feels, at least. And so in Psalm 120, we have not the most positive psalm. It's really a psalm for people Who feel an utter dissatisfaction and even discontentment with the world around them. With with the sin in the world, with the situation in our world. You know, last week I preached a sermon on contentment. Well, this week I'm telling you it's not always bad to be discontent about things for which we should never be content. And one of those things is sin and its effect in our world. Which is death and turmoil really evil, because God, we, the, the Scripture talks about the world many times, and sometimes it talks about the world as all of God's creation. You know, we learn from Scripture, and we know if we just look at creation, that it was created by something. Everything that began to exist was created by God. Everything that began to exist was created by God. The only thing that never began to exist was God himself, and he did not create himself. He always existed. But everything else has begun to exist and was created by God. Except for, and this isn't to say that he's not in control of it, but sin has entered our world, not by God's good creation, but by humans' free choices to sin, to disobey God, to not listen to his word, to be in rebellion against him. And so we find that sometimes the world in Scripture refers to all of God's creation, and sometimes it specifically refers to the parts of God's creation that are stained by sin. Specifically referring to the fallen world, the sinful world, the broken world, the world in need of healing. And so here, we recognize that this psalm is written for people who are discontent with the world. Not as God created it, but as we as humans have made it. A fallen, sinful, broken world. Full of lies and deception. And it doesn't take long in this world to find lies and deception. In fact, uh, the goal in some... There, there are people who make lots of money trying to lie and deceive to you. Have you ever heard of advertisements? Now, I'm not saying that all people who work in advertisement are liars and deceivers, but kind of like politicians, it'd be hard to find one who's not. I say that all with you know tongue-in-cheek. If you work in advertising, I'm sure you're a good and godly person who would never lie or deceive anyone, uh, I just know that my own heart would love to lie and deceive to everyone. And that's the state of our world. We live in a world that lies not just when it doesn't report the facts or reports things that are false, but even when the facts are communicated, they are communicated sometimes in a deceptive way, sometimes manipulative way, sometimes just the very fact, sorry, just sometimes the very exercise of giving you the facts devoid of god is deception what is truth well god is truth and there is and all truth is god's truth but reporting on the the world as it is through the hard sciences but neglecting to mention that god created them is a deception Now, I'm not saying that people are being utterly deceitful or liars. I don't think not explaining every part of everything at all times makes you a deceiver. But actively removing God from the facts of our world in itself is a lie. Because you're removing truth itself from the equation. The psalmist is a person who lives in a world that is so full of lies and deception and malice, a world that longs for war, that he's almost doubled over in pain dealing with this harsh reality. And maybe you too find yourself sometimes near in tears or in weeping. Maybe you find yourself with your stomach stomach sick and in knots, over the state of some of the things in the world. Perhaps the most the moment that I felt that the most was when I was in Jerusalem and we went to the Holocaust museum that's in Jerusalem and I'll tell you I never left a place feeling so sick having arrived so feeling so fine. There is evil in our world that was not created by God, but created by human beings in rebellion against God that is so terrible that it'll just make you sick or weep or something else. And so we have here a psalmist who is dealing with a world just like this, a world of lies, and that's where he sojourns. That's where he is temporarily dwelling. That is where he is living right now. He says that he he has sojourned in Meshach and that he dwells among the tents of Kadar. Those two places are interesting because they're actually on opposite sides of the world from Jerusalem. One's very far north, and one is to the southeast, I believe. They're very far apart from each other. So the psalmist isn't trying to tell us literally where his current address is. He's trying to get at the point that in exile, having been removed from the promised land and living in a foreign land, he is so far from Jerusalem. And in those places, in those places, he is far from God, because the people there are far from God. Now, it's interesting, maybe the the psalmist was thinking of Ezekiel 38. In Ezekiel 38, uh, if you'll turn there just for a moment, I think it would be worth looking at just to see what's going on here. In Ezekiel 38, we're getting a picture of, of some of the last things. We get a picture of Eventually, the God's new exodus in which he's going to save his people again. And in verse 1, it says, The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, referring to Ezekiel. Set your face toward Gog of the land of Magog, the chief prince of Meshach. And if you go on to read the chapter, you learn how awful that, that guy really is. This is actually something that John in his apocalypse or in his, his vision in Revelation actually records. In Revelation 20, you can also turn there if you'd like. Specifically in verses 7 through 10, we get a reference to the same figure. In Revelation 20, verses 7 through 10, it says, And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth. Gog and Magog, you heard of these before, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea, and they are marched up over the broad plain of the earth, and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them, and the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Perhaps the psalmist was thinking of that Magog and Gog who are referenced in Ezekiel and perhaps, perhaps realizing that Meshek is a terrible place of warmongers. Now, he's not trying to characterize every person in that place as a warmonger, but you get the picture very clearly. These are people with lying lips and deceitful tongues. We think of James Chapter 3, verse 6, James teaches us, And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. Our tongues can be destructive. So these lying lips, these deceitful tongues, who when, when this psalmist speaks, when he speaks about his desire for peace, They want war. You know, we've been told a great lie. And some of you might believe it a little bit. The great lie of our time, if there's one, which I'm not sure there is, but one of the great lies of our time is that people are basically good. That people are basically good. Now, it doesn't take too long to look at the history of just the last hundred or so years to see that that statement just simply could not be true. Uh, G.K. Chesterton uh, once commented that the only doctrine in all of scripture that is most self-evident to all people is the doctrine of original sin. You don't need a Bible to recognize that people are flawed and people left to their own devices are evil. And it's not a popular thing to say, Everyone today wants you to believe people are basically good. And it's very offensive to tell someone that they're not. I wouldn't recommend you just walk down the street and do that. Although if you do, please let me know how it goes. And if you need someone to help with the hospital bills, don't come to me. The great lie is that people are basically good. And and left to our own devices, things will go all right. But the reality has been just in the last hundred years, if not for thousands of years before that, some of which were as bad or worse than the last hundred years, we recognize that that cannot be the case. And, and so scripture tells us, no, none is good, not even one. Jesus himself, when, he, when a person comes up to an, and addresses him and says, good teacher, he says, why do you call me good? Only God is good. Now, of course, Jesus was God, so the guy wasn't far off, but he didn't realize what Jesus was saying. But the reality, even Jesus attested to, is only God is good. And yet we go on believing that we're basically good. And if we do, you know, basically good things, and we do enough right, we're going to be fine. If, if you believe in heaven or hell or some afterlife today, most people you meet just outside these doors probably believe something like, if you're a generally good person who doesn't go to jail... That's kind of the standard, doesn't go to jail. Then you're going to be okay. When you die, you'll get paradise. But if you're a bad person who goes to jail and doesn't get reformed, I guess, in jail, I don't know what their their standards really are. If you're a bad person, then all of a sudden, it's not going to work out. And And that's kind of the standard, generally good versus bad. But the reality is, Scripture tells us, no one is good, not even one. Apart from Jesus Christ, no one is good. Apart from God, you have no access to goodness. God himself is good. And by that I don't mean as an adjective, I mean a noun. God is what goodness is. And so apart from God, how could we be good? And the reality is, even if you think you're neutral on God, you're not. There's, there's no neutral shift on the relationship to God. There is only, only accepting God and rejecting God. And the psalmist lives in a culture, he sojourns in a culture, he dwells in a culture of lies, of warmongers, of people who they spread their lies in order to spread their destruction. And so on his way to Jerusalem, as many other Jewish people would have followed him in years to come, possibly singing this psalm that he wrote, he says, in my distress, I called to the Lord and he answered me. I know he is faithful because in the past I've called to the Lord and he has answered me. And then he says, deliver me, O Lord. Deliver me, O Lord. What's the solution to living in a culture that's filled with people who are not good because they're apart from God? Crying to God, deliver me, O lord from lying lips from a deceitful tongue from all these things because what's the destiny for these things he says what shall be given to you and what more shall be done to you you deceitful tongues and he says a warrior's sharp arrows with glowing coals of the broom tree now the broom tree was like a hardwood that that'll burn for quite a while so what he's saying is what your destiny is. If you are opposed to God, if you are a liar, if you are a deceiver, if you are a warmonger, your destiny are warrior sharp arrows. Now who is the warrior? Throughout the Psalms, we actually see God pictured as a warrior. And in fact, in Psalm 64, we see God and his arrows being used to turn these liars' lies into truth. He is actually striking them with his arrows. It's actually saying God is the one firing... Actually, firing is kind of an anachronism. God is the one loosing his arrows, to get more historically correct. If you don't know what I'm talking about, just, okay. God is the one actually loosing his arrows against these these people. So what is their destiny? A warrior's sharp arrows with glowing coals of the virgin. Now, we don't know if they were throwing the coals, if they were heating the arrowheads over the coals. We don't know. We just know... That the two things that are coming for these people are the arrows of truth, as Psalm 64 gives us a picture of, and the coals of God's judgment, which we see in Psalm 140, verse 10. So what's the destiny for these people? Well, it's not very good. Their path is a path of unrighteousness, a path of wickedness, a path that leads them in opposition to God. And to be very clear, because there's no neutral, everyone naturally, by birth, is in the category that the psalmist is describing here. They are those with lying lips and a deceitful tongue. You know what? One of the few sins I can remember before I was saved, and and there have been uh, plenty more since then, but the one that I can remember actively is lying. I can remember from a very young age that what I naturally did when I was asked any question, let alone a question accusing me of something, was lie. There may be nothing more natural to a fallen human being than to lie. And yet, you know, those are the liars and the deceivers. They deserve the arrows of truth of God. They deserve his judgment. But, but, but me, not so much. Naturally, we all deserve the judgment of God. We all deserve the arrows of God. But with Christ, we can take a different path. And so the psalmist is at a crossroads. And this crossroads is being a person who sojourns in a world of lies, but longs for, longs for, a world of peace, a world of shalom, as the Hebrew word is, of wholeness, of of settledness, of wellness, of well-being. What distinguishes a person of God in a culture that is opposed to God is the fact that while everyone is crying for war, they are someone longing for and perhaps even speaking out for shalom, for God's peace. Not just the absence of destruction, but the active seeking of wholeness, of wellness, of settledness. In a culture where everyone is pro-destruction, God's people will oppose destruction and fight for peace. Fight for building up. And at this crossroads, we have a decision to make. Are we going to say yes to this world or say no? Saying no to this world is de facto saying yes to God. If we're saying no to this fallen world, we must say yes to God. And the Bible has a word for this. It's called repentance. This is not a popular word, you will find out. I don't actually, only recently have I gotten where I don't have a bunch of baggage in my head about the word repentance. You know, repentance sometimes is just described as being sorry for your sins. I'm like, that's all well and good, but that doesn't get me anywhere. It doesn't feel like. Repentance is described as, I always have the picture. I don't know about you all. Maybe, maybe this is just me. I always have the picture, and I never grew up going to stuff like this, really. I always have the picture of the, the evangelist who's in like a tent And he's screaming at you to repent. He's not really telling you about the gospel so much as he's telling you to, like, you know, go wear nicer clothes, go, like, take care of yourself, get your house in order kind of stuff. You know, clean up your act, stop cursing, stop smoking, stop drinking, whatever it is. And then you can come up here to the front. And if you're ready to do all that, you can come to the front. But if you're not ready to repent and all of that, that that means getting your house in order, uh, then you can just stay in your seat. And it always gives off the impression that you have to get good to get to God. When the reality is the only way to get good is first to get to God. And so the word repent isn't really loaded with all this baggage. In Scripture, repent simply means, it literally means to change your mind. So that at a crossroads, in a, culture, in a world of lies, if we want a world of shalom, it is saying no to that world of lies. It is saying no to the current situation. It is saying yes to God. Repentance is, is really the first step in the journey from lies to shalom. It's the first step in rejecting a culture opposed to God and accepting God himself. It is, it is a leaving That results in an arriving. It is saying no to all those things that the world loves and longs for. Naturally we want to lie, naturally we want to deceive, we want to put our best foot forward, we want to embellish. And I'm not going to call out the fishermen in the room this week, uh, but maybe that statement alone will get you there. We want to embellish, we want to lie, we want to deceive, we want to manipulate. That's just who we are. And you know what? If you don't think you want destruction, then you're just, just not understanding your own heart apart from God. I had a, a deacon at my last church. And I, I love this guy. And I don't think he'll watch this, and no one around there will watch this, so I can say this. His name is Randy, and I, I just loved Randy. Randy was just a good old boy who knew his Bible real well. And he he'd shumble, he was, he was one of the most humble people uh Almost to the point of being annoying about it. It's kind of like Randy, you're you're better. You know, you can acknowledge that you know your Bible. You don't have to pretend you don't know anything about your Bible just to make a statement about it. But we'd show up to Bible study, and multiple times we had this men's Bible study that met early in the morning, and multiple times he said something I really don't know that I've ever heard. Just a random random church member say, and he said he'd always say something like, you know, I'm not a very smart guy, but y'all just y'all just tell me what you think. Tell me if I'm wrong. And then he said this, and he said it multiple times. He said, God is so holy, so utterly holy and apart from this world. And I, us humans, are so sinful that even my breathing is a sin against this holy God. Now, whether you agree or disagree, isn't really the point. You know what Randy had right? He had right the utter holiness of God and the utter sinfulness of man. Such that our existence is so stained by sin that apart from God, just living is a sin against God. Now, if anyone who is not already a believer in Christ heard that, they would think you're crazy. And in fact, some people, if they're a believer in Christ, may still think you're crazy. Because they have not gotten to the point of of understanding their own sinfulness enough or they don't understand God's holiness enough to recognize the deep, deep divide, the far, broad, ugly ditch between God's holiness and our sinfulness. And the only way to get across that is to recognize your need for Him, your need for Jesus Christ, such that that gap can only be Bridged by the life of Jesus in which he never sinned. There was no gap between him and God. In the death of Jesus in our place for our sins. The resurrection of Jesus in which he conquered the result of sin which is death itself. He's ascended to the right hand of the Father where he intercedes for us as it says in Romans 8. The reality is that naturally... There is a great divide between us and God because we are so sinful. We are so far from Him. And He is so, so holy. But in Jesus Christ, it was like there is no gap at all. If you are in Christ, it is is as if there is no, no separation between you, despite your sinfulness, with God, even given His holiness. And that is... Good news. That may be the very best news. That although we were lost and dead in our sins, Christ came and reconciled us to God. And this word repent is really just when we say no to the world of lies, to the lies of this world, and we say yes to a holy God. Now, if you're thinking for a moment, I don't know about all this repentance stuff. I, I just know about faith. Well, you have a hard time getting into the Bible very far without seeing repentance and faith or repentance and belief going hand in hand. Jesus in Mark 1.15, he says, Repent and believe. And that's repeated often in Scripture. We see Jesus himself saying in Matthew 3, 2, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In Luke fifteen seven, Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Now, this is great news. Because there is only one righteous person, that is Christ. Everyone else is an unrighteous person who needs to repent. If you think you are holy and therefore there will be no rejoicing for you, turn that story around. You are lost without Christ, and repenting in him is what will bring that rejoicing. You know, even at the beginning of the gospel being preached when Jesus had ascended to the right hand of the Father in Acts chapter 2, verse 38, Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Repentance isn't a bad word. Repentance isn't go clean up your house so you can get to God. Repentance is change your mind. Stop choosing the path that leads away from God and choose the path that steadily goes toward Him. Repentance and faith always walk hand in hand. They're really two sides of the same coin. A few years ago, I got this, uh, this challenge coin. I don't know if you know what a challenge coin is. If you were in the military, you might very well. Challenge coins are kind of these heavy coins. They're commemorative usually. They have something on them. And they're kind of a tradition in the military specifically where you're given them and you can trade them with other people and you keep them, you're supposed to keep them on you at all times. And if someone comes up to you and, and challenges you and you can't pull out your coin to show it, you're supposed to buy them a drink. If you actually if you go to Hatcher's across the street, it's a veteran-owned uh, barbecue place. And by the way, this is just a good time to mention, if you take your bulletin in there, I think they're open Tuesday through Saturday, they'll give you a church discount. I don't know if you you know that. But you'll actually see on the wall they have a bunch of challenge they have a box of challenge coins that you can look at. Now, a challenge coin is like any other coin. It has a head and it has a tail. It has two sides. And they always go together. There's no such thing as a coin. That doesn't have two sides. The coin of coming to Jesus and a continually responding to the gospel. Our way of responding to the gospel is to take up that coin, which is faith on one hand, on one side, and repentance on the other. There's no such thing as faith without repentance, and there's no such thing as repentance without faith. Repentance without faith is drudgery. You have no hope. You're just sad. You're just sorry. You're just accepting that things are bad and you can't do anything about it, but there's no one to help you. Faith without repentance is just naive optimism. Oh, everything will be okay, we're all good, we just, we just need to fix this one thing and the whole society will be better. The reality is, we need faith and repentance. The gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news that Jesus is God in the flesh, living, having lived for us, having died for us, having been raised from the dead, ascending to the right hand, where he rules and reigns with the Father, and will come again. That good news can only be responded to by the two sides of that coin, which are faith and repentance. Faith, trusting in Jesus with all your life, and repentance, turning away from a life of sin, saying no to the world that is around us, and yes to God in Christ. That is the only way to respond to the gospel that is right. That is the only way. And the reality is, if you're thinking in this room, well, I did that 40 years ago, let me remind you that every time the gospel is preached, the right response for everybody, whether they are lost at the moment or whether they've been saved for decades, is repentance and faith. We continually, we continually must repent and believe in the gospel We must continually reorient our lives around the story of God's salvation in Christ Jesus. If we do not do that, we cease to be Christian. We cease to be following God. It is that continual trust. It is that continual repentance. It's not just the act of repenting. It is being a repentant person. Being the kind of person who, when when they hear the gospel, they can do nothing else but confess their sins and praise the Lord and say no to the world around them and yes to Jesus Christ. And if you have never done that before, I invite you to do it today. And if you've done that a hundred times before, let it be 101 today. Let's pray.